in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's a new week in the month of November, the 7th of November, 2016. We've got a few days left of the year. And, uh, hey, it's been great to be part of your family. Remember, if you want to be part of the Channel Africa family on social media, join us on at Channel Africa 1 on Twitter or at African Dialogue. Well, today we're going to be speaking on the issues of the Gambia, the political environment just before the December elections. That's what we'll be looking at today. Uh, We know that the president there has been in power for many years since 1994. So we're going to be looking at that environment in that country because of that democratic process that is uh, still observed by the international community there. But uh, let's get our news. We've got uh, uh, who do we have right here? Uh, I always forget our our presenter, but we're going to get our news right now. Um, Yeah. Top stories, 29 people killed and more than 50 wounded in fighting between militias in Somalia. 115 Libyan migrants rescued off the coast of Libya and Donald Trump criticizes the FBI for saying his rival Hillary Clinton should not face charges over newly discovered emails linked to her. Good morning. I'm Amanda Machaga. 29 people have been killed and more than 50 wounded in fighting between militias in Somalia's central Galkayo city. Puntland police say 16 soldiers serving in the region's armed forces were killed and 30 wounded since fighting broke out again on Sunday. The region of Galmadak had 13 soldiers killed and 20 wounded. The two regions have a history of clashes and the latest round of fighting erupted after a dispute over buildings planned in Galkayo, a city that is divided between the two sides. Libya's coast guards have rescued 115 migrants who had been aboard a rubber boat that broke down off Tripoli. One of them died. The migrants were of various African nationalities. People smugglers have exploited the chaos gripping Libya since the 2011 uprising that overthrew Muammar Gaddafi to traffic migrants across the Mediterranean to Europe. Over 4,000 migrants have died trying to cross the Mediterranean so far this year. A high number that the full year totals for 2014, 2015 or any other year on record according to the International Organization for Migration. 
Nigerian soldiers say they have found another of the more than 200 schoolgirls that Boko Haram militants abducted from their school in the country's northern part in Chibok in 2014. They say they found Mariam Ali Mayanga in Palka, a Gwaza local government area in Bono State. The soldiers were screening escapees from Boko Haram's base in the Sambisa forest when they found the girl carrying her 10-month-old son. Donald Trump has criticized the FBI for saying his rival Hillary Clinton should not face charges of a newly discovered emails linked to her. He told a campaign rally in Michigan that the FBI couldn't have reviewed 650,000 new emails in eight days, adding that Clinton was protected by a rigged system. The FBI Director James Comey sent a letter informing Congress the agency had not changed its conclusions from earlier this year about Clinton's handling of classified information. And finally, world leaders and environmentalists meet in Morocco for the United Nations Climate Change Conference to begin work on a rule book on the Global Agreement to Combat Climate Change, also known as the Paris Agreement. The agreement entered into force on Friday last week. Sarah Kemani reports from Morocco. At least 100 countries have ratified the Paris Agreement. The accord has the backing of some of the world's top emitters of greenhouse gases, including China, India and the United States. Developing countries gathering in Morocco will be keen to see if developed countries will commit to raising 100 billion US dollars per year by 2020 to help them adapt to the effects of climate change. The agreement's primary goal is to limit global warming below 2 degrees Celsius and also close to 1.5 degrees Celsius as possible to stem dangerous effects of global warming. Recapping your top stories, 29 people killed and more than 50 wounded in fighting between militias in Somalia. 115 Libyan migrants rescued off the coast of Libya and Donald Trump criticizes the FBI for saying his rival Hillary Clinton should not face charges of a newly discovered emails linked to her. I'm sorry, Tamanda, I completely had a brain freeze there for a moment. I was greeting her downstairs, and all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, my mind just went blank there. Thank you to Amanda Machaka for that news update. And remember, we still will have our economics update in around uh, uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, We'll also get our sports after that. But today, we're looking at the political environment ahead of uh, the Gambian elections. Gambians are going to the polls in December this year to vote for a President for the fifth time since current leader Yaya Yame came to power in a 1994 coup. Over the past 22 years, President Yame and the Gambian security forces have used enforced disappearances, torture, intimidation, and arbitrary arrest for the suppression or dissent and to preserve Yame's grip on power. Ahead of this year's election, the government has repeated these tactics with a crackdown on opposition parties, particularly the United Democratic Party 
also known as the UDP, that has all but extinguished hopes for a free and fair election. To help us on this particular subject, we joined on the line by Jim Wormington, who is uh, the West Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch. They've recently uh, released a report looking at the political environment titled Gambia Crackdown Threatens Presidential Elections. We also have on the line Jagan Gray Johnson, who's the Communications and Advocacy Officer with the Africa Governance Monitoring and Advocacy Project at the Africa Foundations of the Open Society Foundation. Well, I'm going to start with you, Jim. In terms of looking at this report, it's very much detailed. It's a 43-page report that looks at what you claim to be a repressive and a crackdown on opposition politics. Tell us a little bit, um, uh, Jim, about this report from Human Rights Watch. Sure. Uh, the report looks towards Gambia's presidential election, which, as you say, will happen on the 1st of December of this year, uh, and really looks about the history of, of what's happened in Gambia since the beginning of 2016. Um, as this election approached in April, uh, we had an opposition activist called Solo Sandeng, uh, who went out into the streets calling for electoral reform, calling essentially for a more level playing field for opposition to compete in the election with the government of President Jammeh. Sandeng, along with some of the people who protested with him, was arrested, uh, and Sandeng himself was taken to the headquarters of Gambia's intelligence agency, and he was beaten to death. Uh, And since then, we've seen a much wider crackdown uh, by the Gambian government on members of Sandeng's political party, known as the United Democratic Party, which is the largest opposition party in Gambia, uh, including the the arrest of of more than 90 people and, and 30 members of the UDP, including its leader, uh, have been uh, imprisoned and sentenced to three-year jail terms. Mm. So basically this report looks at the impact of of those types of of abuses, Mm. which are not new in Gambia and have happened over many years, and the fact that it's very hard as you look towards this election to imagine having a level playing field, having a free and fair election, Mm. when you have the leader of the largest opposition party who's in, in jail and such a, a widespread crackdown against other members of that party. Mm. Coming, staying with you uh, a little bit there, Jim, is the fact is it the fact that they're being arrested for participating in protests? Is that the main reason of their arrests? Certainly, that's the reason uh, that was given by the government. Mm. Uh, the, the Gambian government alleges that those protests were illegal because they occurred without a permit. Um, in reality, both under international law and, and just sort of basic proportionality, uh, first of all, you, uh, opposition groups shouldn't have to get a permit to go out and protest uh, where there's no risk to, to public safety. And then, of course, if they do, they certainly shouldn't be arrested on a mass scale and sentenced to, to three-year terms with, with one of them be beaten in detention. So in reality, when you look more closely at the reasons for, for why these arrests occurred, I think the Gambian government saw particularly the first protest in April when the opposition went out on the streets calling for electoral reform as the kind of opening of civic Mm. space, of opening of of room for political participation that the government was seeking to discourage and crack down on in such a critical election year. Mm. Let me come to Jagan Gray-Johnson joining us from the Open Society Foundations. Uh, Looking at this situation that we're seeing, we're seeing uh, a real long-term 
situation where President Jame has been in uh, power in the Gambia for more than 20 years and the environment would mean that uh, he would maybe because of this kind of environment that we're seeing right now be seeking another re-election for the fifth term and for the first time he will be facing a big major opposition candidate. What does this say right now the political situation that we're seeing in the Gambia, Jürgen? Well, I mean, I, I think um, the country is certainly at a crossroads. Um, it is um, unprecedented um, over the last 22 years, and indeed even um, um, since before 1965 that um, we've actually seen such a groundswell of uh, potential opposition. Um, so clearly I think uh, um, we've, the country has gotten to a, to a, to a situation whereby uh, um, are actually um, showing their actual dis- dissatisfaction uh, with the repressive regime as it stands. Uh, but then secondly, I think more importantly, um, is the fact that um, this is going to be unprecedented in the country's history, uh, given the fact that uh, they are going to, to the polls, but um, the Electoral Amendment Act 2015 was extremely skewed, um, more towards um, giving uh, undue advantage to incumbency and also disadvantaging very seriously any political opposition moving forward. And hence, that's really the genesis um, of the protests and the crackdown that Jim so ably mentioned earlier on. So, again, just to um, just to ask your question, that uh, this is not going to be any normal year for the country. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the next 25 days or so, we're going to see a seismic shift either which way. Mm-hmm. Either, whether elections happen or not is another debate. Um, my, my personal opinion based on just standards of Dr. Greening and the evidence that we have before us that elections will not happen because there's simply no money for it. And what would be the reaction of that moving forward mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. political opposition and the civilians? Mm-hmm. Let me also bring in my guest also in our studio, Ephraim Kumalo, who's uh, joining us uh, as Channel Africa Portuguese Service uh, executive producer and was also a senior journalist here at Channel Africa. Uh, looking at that environment, uh, well, he wants to be called Charles, Charlie, Charlie Kumalo. Uh, we call him that. But let's let's look at this particular situation um, uh, in terms of uh, the idea of uh, President Jaja Jame seeking a re-election for the fifth time. We know that seems to be a new, con- it's not a new conversation but a long-term conversation in Africa about heads of state, how much they can stand for re-election. We know Ivory Coast has been exploring that with its referendum. What precedence does this set for Gambia? Well, uh, it's a normal procedure in the Gambia when the country is just about to hold elections that uh, intimidation will go all out in full force. Mm. Not only to intimidate members of political parties, mm. also the privately owned media mm. is under siege in that country. Mm. Definitely, they are being confined to certain rules and regulations they are not allowed to cover anything pertaining to the elections or campaigning. Mm. They are being confined to certain corners. As a result, it becomes very, very difficult for people outside the country to know what is happening. But if so, those who are taking part in the elections in the country, I mean, uh, the writing is on the wall mm. that uh, the president will continue to rule that country as long as he wants it. Mm. I mean, political parties do not have enough resources. We are talking about uh, a government that uses all the country's resources for its own electoral campaigns, mm. depriving political parties you know, from entering into a level playing field. Mm. Definitely, Yaya Jama will still remain the winner of the country, of the elections. And uh, 
We do not foresee any changes at the moment because the attitude of the mainstream remains the same. Mm. He has said it again and again that uh, nobody will ever remove him from power. Whether they have elections or not elections, the man is there to stay. Mm. Nobody's going to shake him. I don't know until when, but uh, as for now, the man is still there and his family entrenched in that office. Mm. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Uh, and uh, we're speaking to Charles Kumalo, who is joining us in our studios. He's a senior journalist and Channel Africa Portuguese service executive producer. We also have on the line Jim Worthing, Wormington, rather, who is the West Africa researcher at the Human Rights Watch. And uh, we're going to uh, speak to him a little bit more after our break to find out a little bit more about what's happening on the ground and the kind of uh, uh, conversations they had with people. I know you spoke to a lot of people about the political situation in the country. And also, Jürgen Gray-Johnson is joining us uh, from the Open Society Foundation, and he's the uh, Communication and Advocacy Officer with the governance, Africa Governance Monitoring and Advocacy Project. Let's take a quick break. It's 11.15 Central African time. We'll be back. November is Disability Month in South Africa, but should be a continental event. So let's all make a difference. Channel Africa is calling on all to join us to help needy children everywhere. South Africans are being called on to help Channel Africa help 32 children from Tumela Home for the Mentally and Physically Disabled Children in Ivory Park, east of Johannesburg. Make a difference by donating toys, non-perishable foods, disposable nappies and toiletries. Join Channel Africa on the 10th of November as we broadcast live from Tumelo House as we hand out the donations we received. Be with us as we make a difference. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue. We come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. The time right now here in Central Africa, it is 11.17. And we are speaking about the political situation ahead of the elections in December in the Gambia. And we know that uh, uh, the leader of the country, the president, Yaja Jame, has uh, been in power since a 1994 over the past 22 years he has been president of the Gambia and during election time we know that even historically in the country there has been reports of torture, intimidation and also arbitrary arrests of opposition groups but I want to come to you uh, Jürgen in terms of looking at uh, uh, Jame himself as a political leader. We know that he's been in the country for the past 22 years that he was leading in a 1994 coup what more do we know about the history of this man? Well, I think, uh, you know, um, th- there's been documented evidence that uh, clearly, first of all, um, he shot his way to power. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, over um, the, the last certainly 18 years, um, there's been a systematic manipulation um, of uh, regulatory frameworks um, in the sense of, uh, you know, manipulating laws that actually... Um, 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 work towards his advantage as an incumbency. Mm. Um, the constitution um, has been um, changed so many times 
Um, again, um, the, in the original um, constitution of 1996-97 constitution in the Second Republic, um, there were term limits. Um, that was taken out. Um, there was also a 50 plus one majority. That was taken out in 2000 um, when the election was too close for comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, as I said earlier, um, now we've got um, an, another regulatory framework that makes it exceedingly difficult um, for popular participation and also extremely expensive um, for anybody that's seeking uh, public office in that country, uh, making it per capita probably one of the most expensive countries to do that. So, so clearly you see a person that is extremely manipulative. Um, and also, on top of that, uh, again, uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and others, including um, the report from Juan Mendez, um, the, 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 special re- the representative to the, to the Secretary General, Special Rapporteur on Torture and Ill Treatment, um, uh, documented. So there's mm-hmm. documentary evidence um, from three different, very different sources um, that actually um, 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 highlight um, the brutality um, of, of, of a regime that is intolerant of public dissent. Mm-hmm. And so, as I said, you know, um, this pattern has been growing, and uh, you know, there's evidence to actually show that we are dealing with an extremely um, callous and uh, uncompromising dictatorship. Mm. Charles, what are your thoughts around George uh, Jamim? His kind of leadership, how he came into power, history as a, as a strong man. He came into power via a military coup. Well, they said a bloodless coup that took place in 22 July 1994. And ever since he's been clinging to power. You know, the man is so controversial. You do not necessarily have to shake his political you know, position mm. to be his opponent. He's not only targeting political opponents. Whoever disagrees with him is an opponent or an enemy. I'll give you a good example. He once made a statement in the country that... Uh, he is able to cure HIV. And uh, one UN diplomat disagreed with him. The diplomat said, no, it's not fair to say that because you are misleading people. At the moment, there is no cure for HIV. And that diplomat was given 72 hours to leave the country. Mm. You mm. can see the type mm. of a person mm. he is. Mm. For an example, uh, his attitude towards gays and lesbians in the country is horrendous. For a leader of a country somebody seen as the father of the nation, to say, if I do come across gays in the country, I will slit their throat personally, myself. I mean, you would never expect that uh, a leader of a country can talk like that. It's a ruthless conversation, yeah. Precisely, precisely. Hence, I'm saying, you do not necessarily have to be a journalist or a political opponent in the country to be his enemy, you know. He doesn't want any type of a disagreement. His word is final, and it must be taken like that. It's a very, very poor leadership. It's so poor in extent that uh, I don't even think right now you can talk about the probable successor in the Gambia. Mm. It could be a serious crime under these circumstances, looking at the man, how he behaves, how he's running that country, and how he treats his political adversaries. Mm. Your thoughts, Jim, on, on this type of leadership in the Gambia? Yeah, I think there's sort of two things to underscore. I mean, I think the first thing was the, the point about the sort of inflammatory rhetoric that President Jammeh uses. I think that that's really been a key characteristic of, of his leadership. Um, we talked already about the, the threats against um, LGBT populations, um, but also in the lead-up to this election, he has certainly threatened opposition. Uh, he said, uh, let me call the, these opposition evil vermin, uh, and that if they destabilize the country, he'll bury them nine feet deep. Um, and I think what's been particularly interesting in our research is to, to link that rhetoric with the types of abuses that we've seen 
by security forces, mm. uh, particularly the use of excessive force at rallies, beating protesters, uh, subsequently torturing them in detention. And on a new number of occasions, a really a striking number, we saw the types of statements by members of the police, by members of the intelligence agency to protesters that really looked like the rhetoric that JAMA uses, things like, uh, you're going to break up this enjo enjoyable regime of ours, or you're not going to take this country from us. I think it's showing that connection between the type of rhetoric that JAMA uses and the abuses that are perpetrated by the security forces under him that really show the, the problematic aspect of, of that type of behavior. I think the second point uh, really to underscore is the kind of unpredictability and arbitrariness of a lot of the, the government's behavior. It's important now to underscore that in Gambia there are opposition rallies that are happening. Um, opposition parties are able to get permits and often able to go out and hold modest rallies. However, when you talk to many of the opposition parties, they know that that could stop at any moment should they pose too great of an electoral threat to mm -hmm. the government mm -hmm. uh, and that then they would then be at risk of arrest. And so it's that sort of unpredictability, the arbitrariness uh, of the way that the government operates, I think is also a signature of, of President Jamais' leadership. Mm. And, and staying with you, in terms of um, the landscape for opposition parties, you also highlighted earlier on, Jim, the fact that uh, there is a lot of um, a crackdown on opposition parties. But in terms of their resilience, in this kind of environment, uh, are they thriving despite these kind of, um, uh, you know, oppos like opposition backlash coming from the government? I think there's a real um, variety in the way that Gambian opposition parties practice. Um, mm. If we talk about the United Democratic Party, the party that has been almost entirely the target of the abuses since April, Clearly, the UDP's capacity to organize and mobilize ahead of this December election has been severely impacted. Uh, imagine having a country in which the leader of an opposition party is in detention for an election. Clearly, that makes it very difficult for that party uh, to contest the election. Uh, but the UDP has also nominated a presidential candidate for the upcoming election, and, and that candidate uh, has actually been chosen as the head of an opposition coalition uh, that will contest the election against President Jammeh. And so even in the context of having the leader arrested, they have taken the strategic decision that they must contest this election because it is such a critical time in, in Jammeh in, in and, and, and Gambia's history. Uh, and so there are other opposition parties who are also part of that coalition. And as I say, many of them are able to hold rallies. Some even have newspapers that, that are allied to them and who speak quite critically of the government's action. Uh, but underscoring all of that is the fact that if there is an opposition rally or an opposition uh, news article or a radio program that is too critical of the government or gets uh, too close to an issue that the President Jammeh thinks should not be discussed, then the history of Gambia uh, and President Jammeh's own conduct in office shows that at any moment there is always the risk that the security forces will crack down, arrest that person, and perhaps even worse once that person is in detention. And so it is, it's that unpredictability, it's the fact that ultimately opposition parties who are contesting this election don't know what the government's response will be if they become too great a threat to President Jammeh's government, that I think is really the, the important thing to underscore as this election approaches. There's the underlying climate of fear, and we simply don't know what will happen if there becomes a real contest for power.
Mm, Jigga, let me bring you in in this issue of opposition politics. Clearly, the, the, the game of opposition politics is to agree with even the uh, ruling party. Uh, the environment in South Africa is very much like that. I mean, opposition parties never agree with the ruling parties. And it was just highlighted by, highlighted by uh, Charles Kumalo earlier on was the fact that the president of the country, Jaja Jami, does not stand for anyone who actually says any single thing that uh, overrules his own sense. Sentiments. That's clearly not democratic. Jürgen, are you there? Yes, I, I am. Um, yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I think that's obvious. You, 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 you've stated the obvious, which is that sure. um, you know the, democ- the democratic credentials um, that this man has is next to zero. Um, the level of tolerance for political pluralism is also non-existent in that country. And again, I think this shouldn't be surprising to anybody. Um, from the early days of uh, um, July the 22nd, 1994, when he led a small group of military um, 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 personnel that uh, overthrew the government, uh, the battle of the gun, um, they ruled by decree. They ruled by decree for almost two years. And then thereafter, the transition from military to uh, civilian um, and government was just that uh, in name. It was a transition in name, but um, in nature, um, he very much remained um, 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 a military despot. Um, and I'm not saying that um, out of uh, emotional sentiment. I'm saying that because the facts and the evidence divide and prove that that has been the nature of his uh, dispensation, and that's how he has engaged or not engaged um, with dissenting voices um, and with voices that actually oppose him, um, and especially with voices that also offer an alternative, um, policy alternatives, um, 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 alternatives to the vision that they see as to how a country should be governed, um, are not seen as political opponents, but actually they're seen as enemies. So as a result, um, the, you know, he's got a very, very low level of tolerance mm. um, for alternative views. Mm. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're with me, Benjamin Mushatam. I'm not alone in studio. I have uh, Charles Kumalo, who is Channel Africa Portuguese service executive producer and senior journalist. Also joining us on the line is Jim Wilmington, who is uh, from uh, the Human Rights Watch. He's a West Africa researcher there. And Jurgen Gray Johnson joins us from the Open uh, Society Foundation. I'm going to take a quick break. It's almost 11.30 Central African time remember if you want to give us your thoughts on this particular program you can sms us your views on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero and you can also email us at info at channelafrica.org and when we come back we'll explore the issue of have we seen any intervention from the economic community of west african states and have we seen any form of interaction in these kind of situation with the african union and see also the relationship of the gambia with the international community. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa. It's 11.30 Central African time. And today we're speaking about the Gambia and the political situation there. And let's come to you, Charles, and the fact that uh, have we seen any uh, conversations happening around the suppression and also this intimidation before election, this continuance flow of also dominance of power from this one man uh, in, in the country? Have we seen anything being said from the African Union to deal with these issues? Yes, quite a number of things have been said, but uh, not as much as they're supposed to be. You know, African leaders or African diplomats, you know, they do not criticize each other, especially in public. They've hinted about, you know, the suppression of uh, freedom of the press in the country, suppression of uh, free political activities. They've said that, but it's not enough. It doesn't change the man. But I must also indicate that for the very first time, uh, a coalition of seven political parties will contest the elections, will actually challenge President Yaya Jami. This could be a force to be reckoned with right now. But now, the unfortunate thing when it comes to the elections of the Gambia is that uh, the party that is ahead is ultimately the winner. It's not a question of uh, attaining a 50% or 50% plus mark to be an outright winner. No. This simply means if the ruling party attains 40% and the rest attain anything below that, ultimately he's the winner. You see how, e- how easy it is for him also to win the elections. But uh, on the level of uh, political intervention or maybe, I'm sorry, criticism from around the continent, well, uh, from the African continent, nothing has been said that much. Yeah, But uh, a lot was said, of course, uh, by the Commonwealth. It's a former British colony, belongs, of course, to the Commonwealth family. Uh, About two years ago, he pulled out of the Commonwealth, saying that uh, he no longer sees any necessity for being part and parcel of that uh, grouping because uh, he was criticized at one of uh, the Commonwealth uh, summit. And uh, on the side of the African Union, Frankly, nothing has ever been said. Or equal aside, dead silent, nothing has been said. I mean, uh, you talk about a government that is witch-hunting against its own people. Journalists have been killed, assassinated. You know, when you talk about the freedom of the press in the Gambia, you talk about something that is foreign to the journalists in that country. A prominent journalist and a publisher with the name of Deida Haidara was brutally murdered in broad daylight shot at, you know, like a criminal. And until today, nobody has ever been arrested or charged with this murder. And it's obvious, the writings on the wall who actually eliminated him. His uh, publication offices were also satellite. You see. But nothing has ever come up strongly from the African continent, even from the block where the country is, the ECOWAS, to say that, uh, Mr. President, this is too much. You are terrorizing your own people. You are brutalizing your own nation. Nothing to this extent so far. Jürgen, your, your thoughts on this uh, very much uh, huge silence that's coming from the African community? Uh, yeah, um, to, a, to a certain degree, I, I will agree that um, there's been silence, but I also would disagree um, to state that, um, and, I, and I'd like to take it on two levels. One is on the, um, the ECOWAS, which is the Economic Community of West African States. Um, which is the regional economic um, grouping um, within, within which Gambia belongs to. Um, 
we have to, I think, be even-handed when we're making that analysis as to um, whether the regional economic community has acted or not has acted. Now, they may not have acted to our satisfaction, to, to some of us, but I think they have made overtures um, in the sense that um, if we cast our minds back, the last election was in 2011, ECOWAS refused to, um, to, to, to observe those elections, which is unprecedented. It's never, ever happened before that a regional economic community has in any region, for that matter, have said that we are not going to be involved in this process because it's a sham. So ECOWAS did that on Gambia in 2011. That's the first thing. Secondly, at the community court, um, the ECOWAS community court, there have been, uh, been many uh, cases that have um, been filed against Gambia government, including um, the one that my colleague just talked about now, the death of Data Hydra, um, whereby the findings was that um, they actually laid... Um, not all the blame, but all of the blame firmly on the steps of the Gambia government for failing to um, investigate that death. Um, there's been also cases of torture that the ECOWAS court has also found against the Gambia government. So clearly, as, we, as it stands now, the, the, the regime of President Jama is increasingly isolated. Um, we also have to remember that um, it's a record that President Jama has never been made the head of ECOWAS in his 22 years reign which is unprecedented because that is supposed to be a rotational chairmanship and he's been skipped at every time. So clearly I think these are the diplomatic nuances and the messages that are being sent out there to basically state that his peers have absolutely no respect for him and they are actually protesting the way he's going about his ruling and also his governance um, in that particular country. And the last um, point that I'd like to state is that uh, you know, um, Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, had came, came out very, very strongly against the clampdown um, of the protesters in April and in May, um, to a point where Jammeh actually retorted, and um, 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 he was angered by um, 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 Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's comments about the need to investigate the death of Solis Sunday and the need to also release the prisoners, because, you know, it was totally unprecedented and it went against normative regional framework and continental standards yeah. in arresting people for merely exercising their rights. So his reaction to that was that Ban Ki-moon could go to hell, and this was publicly stated. <laughs> so clearly, I think I would tend to disagree that um, the international community hasn't done anything. They may not have done enough, but they have been doing things and speaking out against the brutality in the gap. Jim, clearly more needs to be said and done. Yeah, I would agree with Jagan in the sense that it's been, I think, certainly important that ECOWAS, uh, through the, the Community Court of Justice, um, the African Union through the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, and the, uh, the UN, both through the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Secretary General, have made very robust and forceful statements condemning uh, the abuses that the government has committed since April, and in fact, in earlier years as well. Um, but absolutely, I would agree that, that more needs to be done. I think this is an absolutely critical period as the election approaches, both because of the, the seven-party coalition that might make this a much more genuinely contested election uh, than in past years, and therefore, because there's more risk to the government, there may also be more risk of abuses. And so it's vital that there both be international scrutiny of this election, uh, but also that, that international actors demonstrate to, to President Jammeh and his government that they have to do a, a series of, of things before this election to make the election as fair as possible releasing peaceful protesters, uh, granting opposition parties more access to media even before the election campaign begins, and initiating investigations into those who have died in custody. 
And those benchmarks are so important that I think what the international community should do, what Human Rights Watch is asking them to do, both at ECOWAS, uh, the European Union, and the United States, is to make clear that if those benchmarks are not met, then sanctions against the Gambian government and specifically against high-level individuals responsible for human rights abuses are the only logical step if the Gambian government fails to meet those vital benchmarks before the election arrives. Mm. And I'm sure that we also what you're highlighting is important in terms of moving things forward, in terms of the monitoring processes, if these elections will unfold. Charles, we need to have an international community that's going to invest into these elections in terms of monitoring. That is if uh, President Yaya Jami himself accepts them mm. to come into the country sure. to win the elections. Mm. Yeah. And, and you know, talking about the elections, something very interesting, I wonder if my colleagues are aware of that. In the Gambia, nobody is allowed to use a loud hailer, you know, loudspeaker. Mm. Only the president is permitted to do that. Meaning that even if you can hold a rally in public, you just, you just have to shout at the top of your voice. You are not allowed to use a loud hailer. But, but now, to note out uh, what my colleague have just said, talking about the benchmarks, it might not be easy to achieve those benchmarks for simple reason that the Gambia has drifted away from the Western world, you know depending a lot on our Western countries and so on. It has drifted away. It is now focused on the Arab countries, the Gulf Arab states. Well, uh, bearing in mind, of course, that uh, over 90% of uh, the Gambian population are Muslims. Yeah. So the country is a beneficiary from the Gulf states. And they're looking at the governments, I mean, the Gulf states. I mean, you talk of uh, kingdoms, dynasties, and military rulers. You get a point. Those are people who cannot actually prescribe any form of uh, democracy to anybody in mm, the world. Mm. Yeah, so it, it might not be easy for Gambia to change the tune right now. If it was still the member of the Commonwealth, one would say yes, they can put pressure there. If it, if it was still, of course, you know, an active member within uh, the international community, one would say yes. Certain countries, you know, can dangle the carrot and say, look, you do this. If you don't do that, you'll have to do without our financial assistance. But uh, he has said it openly to everybody, the world can go to hell. Mm. I mean, he had the boldness of saying that to the UN Secretary General. Mm. Yeah, he said, you can go to hell. He doesn't mind saying that to anybody. But now, look at the, the countries that benefit the Gambia right now. I'm talking about the Gulf states. Mm. You talk about the country like uh, Saudi Arabia, mm. the Kuwait, and all mm. that, mm. dynasties and kingdoms. Those are countries that cannot prescribe any democracy or democratic processes in any country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, so what's the way forward here, especially c- with these elections coming up? It seems like a, a m- more than complex situation, in fact. No, it's undoubtedly complex. And uh, just a couple of, of points of clarification. Um, so opposition parties are not allowed to use a loudspeaker unless they get a permit from the Gambian government to do so, and, okay. and often they do get those permits. Um, but it's the fact that they have to depend on the government to give them a permit that makes sure, it often sure. difficult uh, for them to do that. Uh, I mean, just in relation to to the point on sort of Gambia drifting away from the West, I think that's a very difficult uh, analysis, and I think that, that Charles is absolutely right to, to raise that risk that Gambia is now looking uh, perhaps for financial support from countries like China and the Gulf states that are less uh, principled often in their human rights stance. Um, but I also think that, as is often the case with, with many governments like this, you see some quite close personal ties between President Jammeh and his family uh, and both Europe, where they travel frequently uh, for their own personal activities, and the U.S., where, where President Jammeh even has family in, in education. 
And so I think that it's sort of that contradiction between what the life of many ordinary Gambians is and the willingness of President Jammeh and, and his family to, to go to Europe and the U.S. for personal reasons. It is also an opportunity uh, in terms of, of sanctions. Uh, and the U.S. recently imposed a visa ban uh, on uh, Gambian government officials as a result of the Gambia's failure to accept uh, Gambians who the U.S. wants to deport back to Gambia. And it's very early days, but it looks as though that uh, visa ban might be causing the Gambian government to revisit uh, its previous policy and to be more open to accepting uh, deportees. And so our argument is that that sort of approach, in imposing sanctions specifically on high-level individuals who can be linked to human rights abuses, provides a kind of tailored approach that doesn't affect ordinary Gambians who are continuing to struggle to, to eat and to live, but is very targeted on the high-level group of individuals who benefit from this government and who are most responsible for the abuses that it commits. Mm-hmm. So our argument, as you say, as this moves forward, is, is first of all for uh, ECOWAS and the AU and others to think very seriously about what the best approach is in terms of monitoring this election. I think it's for them to decide, as they did in 2011, whether monitoring gives too much credibility to an already flawed process or whether monitoring is vital to ensure that the rights of opposition uh, are respected as the process moves forward. I think that's the first decision they have to make. Mm. And then secondly, they should absolutely impose uh, a set of benchmarks that makes very clear to the Gambian government that these are are the essential things you have to do to show that you're improving your human rights record, as I say, releasing peaceful protesters in particular, and that if those benchmarks are not met, then this has been too long. Uh, the, the approach of, of rhetoric and engagement with the Gambian government simply hasn't worked, and so it's time to move towards a more sanctions-oriented approach. Well, Jürgen, let me give you the last say in a minute or so. Uh, what are your final sentiments to this conversation? Um, no, I, 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 I totally agree with um, some of the suggestions that have been put forward, but I'd, I'd just like to also put another scenario out there. Um, and that's something that we didn't touch upon. Um, the fact is that uh, um, the majority um, of uh, the, the funders, for example, the European Union um, used to give over 80% um, of uh, the, the, the resources for elections um, to the Gambia. Um, the European Union stopped funding about uh, two years ago um, and because of human rights violations in that country. Um, Taiwan used to um, give um, um, towards the electoral basket fund in terms of logistics, fuel and mobility and other things like that. Yajani um, has kicked Taiwan out and decided to go to China. Um, so as a result, what we are seeing and the evidence is actually showing that there are no resources to hold elections in the next 25 days. Um, so the scenario would be what happens if elections are not held. Again, Gambia will be the first um, to, within um, the African Union to, to be the first country to actually state that we're not holding elections because we don't have money. Um, we know that there have been problems, for example, Burundi. It's not because of resources. It's mainly about constitutional issues in terms of organization and very similar to um, DRC. But Gambia will be the first. So I think that's something that we need to look out for. And if that does come to play and it comes to pass, then the whole dynamics would shift drastically shift um, to a point where we actually now looking at not only issues around democracy but mainly towards security as well. Mm.
Well, thank you to our guests uh, for a very enlightening conversation. Not a very positive one in that regard, but uh, we'll be on the lookout of what's happening at the Gambia. Thank you to Charles Kumalo joining us in our Channel Africa studios. He's our Portuguese service executive producer and senior journalist. Thank you to Jim Wormington, who is uh, West Africa's researcher at Human Rights Watch. Thank you as well to Jürgen Gray Johnson, who is uh, from the Open Society Foundations. He's part of the communications and advocacy. He's the officer there with the Africa Governance Monitoring and Advocacy Project at the Africa Foundations. Thank you all for giving us your time. Thank you very much. Fantastic. That takes us to 11.46, almost 11.47. Let's quickly move on to get our business news. Busani Matebula is standing by. Thanks, Benjamin, and good good morning. Uh, Mozambique's Attorney General has appointed a multinational risk management firm, Kroll, to probe state firms that had hid two billion U.S. dollars in loans from government and international creditors. Last week, the IMF has said it could agree a new aid program to Mozambique early next year if uh, the government made good on promises to renegotiate loans with creditors and allow an independent debt audit. Mozambique News Agency says Kroll will undertake an audit of uh, the Mozambique tuna company Proindicus and Mozambique Asset Management. And Egypt will delay plans to rent a third uh, liquefied natural gas import terminal for one month. The Egyptian government says it has decided to delay holding the tender until an agreement is made with the Ministry of Electricity over its needs for an LNG over the coming period. A third floating and storage regasification unit, an import terminal that converts LNG to natural gas to feed the power grid is expected to arrive at the end of June next year to handle a surge in LNG demand from new power plants coming online. To East Africa, the fourth East Africa Oil and Gas Summit currently underway in Nairobi, Kenya. On the 15th of uh, the month, uh, the conference will host over 3,000 oil and gas executives around the African continent. The three-day event aims to discuss how best to expand exploration success and move into a successful development and production phase. CEO of Africa Oil Corporation, Keith Hill. Yeah, I think the, um, yeah, I've been a participant in uh, all of the previous three uh, East, Oil, uh, East Africa Oil and Gas conferences in Nairobi, and I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for uh, you know, the industry, the uh, government officials, and uh, the you know, leading people in the community to all get together to, to talk about oil in East Africa. South Africa's net foreign reserves have fallen slightly to 41.79 billion US dollars in October from 41.95 billion dollars the previous month. Gross reserves were, however, up at 47.84 billion dollars from 47.24 billion dollars. The forward position, which represents South Africa's central bank's unsettled or swap transactions, also rose to 2.49 billion dollars in October from 2.2 billion dollars in September. HSBC Holdings has posted a sharp uh, jump in its core capital ratio to 13.9% at the end of the third quarter, even as a reported pre-tax profit dropped sharply, bolstering the outlook for near-term dividend payments. The surge in capital ratio boosted the Hong Kong stock of Europe's biggest bank. 
and eased analyst concerns about its ability to build capital buffers in order to maintain its dividend payouts. The bank posted an 86% fall in reported pre-tax profit to $843 million for the third quarter, ending September 30th. Let's look now at your financial indicators. The dollar, 13.54 South African rents, 10.17 Botswana Pula, and 9.73 Zambin Kwacha. Also trading at 0.79 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities gold, $1,292. Platinum has gone up now to $994 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil, $46.05 per barrel. That's your economics news for now. Hey, we've got Fili Lingwati who's going to give us our update on our sports. First up in our sports update this hour, we're serving with tennis news. Kenya will, from today, play host to Africa in the nation's tennis championship that gets underway at the Nairobi Club this morning. As Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi reports, Kenya's top-seeded player Ishmael Changawa hopes to lead the country's field to glory. The U.S.-based player jetted home on Saturday ahead of today's kickoff. The tournament is expected to provide week-long entertainment as the championship is being played in Kenya for the first time. Kenya has missed the previous five editions of the Continental Showpiece, but confidence is high with all host players fired up to impress. The Kenya Tennis Association singled out Tunisia and Morocco as Kenya's main opponents in the competition, which has total prize fund of 25,000 United States dollars. For Channel Africa Sports in Nairobi, Kenya, I'm Francis Mutegi. And in tennis, and in, now in cricket news, from tennis, paceman Kakiso Rabada took five for 92 as South Africa completed an emphatic 177-run victory over Australia in the first test at the Waka today after dismissing the host for 361 just before tea on the final day. The tourists claimed a third successive victory at the Waka after two... 2008 and 2012 triumphs and a one nil lead in the series which continues in Hobart on Saturday and concludes with a day-night at Adelaide Oval. Preachers captain Fav Duplessis says he's delighted with everyone's performance. Look, uh, two bowlers, I don't think so. It felt at times look, it's, it's never easy with two seamers but all you can ask for is the guys to put their hands up. KG was phenomenal to run in for 31 overs on a deck that was still good to bat on um, and to get the results in the end was uh, just a great achievement for him so I'm really proud of him. We had some harsh words after day one, uh, we were very disappointed the way we played and, and we wanted to come back and put in a real solid performance in day two. Uh, the way we responded was, was obviously quite ridiculous, that was an incredible day to do that, um, to turn it around like that and then we backed it up but in day three again and since, yeah, since that day one we've just been unbelievable so the credit has to go to everyone, there was a lot of different guys putting their hands up. Obviously a nice big partnership there with JP and Dean to make sure that we can take the Aussies out of it. And then once again today, not much happening, but everyone just putting their hand up. Even Temba getting his first wicket, uh, running in and piling under them to the cracks there. Australian captain Steve Smith says they're disappointed after starting off on a positive note. 
uh, disappointing. Um, obviously, after the first day, we were in a, a reasonable position to, to bowl them out for 240, and at one for 150 odd, we weren't able to, to capitalise from there, and um, we weren't able to claw our way back. Credit to, I think the way Dumini and Elga played, that that partnership really uh, took us took, took took the game away from us, and it was hard to come back from that. But um, you know, we've got to still look in, at trying to improve and get better in every aspect. Finally. Zambia International Rainford Galaba scored twice as TP Mazembe of the Democratic Republic of Congo beat Algeria's Moludia Bijaya 4-1 at home on Sunday to win the African Confederations Cup for the first time. Mazembe made sure of the win, having held their opponents to a 1-0 draw in Algeria in the first leg of the final last weekend. They won the final 5-2 on aggregate to add the Confederations Cup to their list of honours after winning the African Champions League in 2015, they will receive 660,000 US dollars following the Confederations Cup triumph, with Bejaya receiving the runners-up prize of 462,000 US dollars. Mazembe will now play this year's African Champions League winners, Mamelodi Sundowns of South Africa, in the 2017 African Super Cup on the weekend of the 17th and the 19th of February. And that's the sport news this hour. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Remember, we want to hear your thoughts, so you can uh, tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at African Dialogue, or join us on Facebook on Channel Africa. That's our Facebook page. You can SMS us your thoughts as well on uh, plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Send us your email at info at channelafrica.org. That's how we wrap up our conversations today on what's happening on the continent of Africa. We'll be back same place, same time tomorrow. We're going to end up with music by Papa Wemba. This one is titled Show Me The Way. Show me the way I can go Take me by